Pearl Next Door. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Stephanie Podolik. And I'm Tamara Robbins-Griffith. So tell me about your holidays. You got a gift? I did. I did get a gift that I wanted to tell you about, but we will say it's Curl, welcome to Curl Next Door podcast, right? You're like, tomorrow we got to nail these intros. <laughs> welcome to Curl Next Door. <laughs> the uh, curly hair podcast where we also talk about interesting people with curly hair and a smorgasbord, <laughs> smorgasbord of other interesting facts and information. About humans, dogs... And other. And the other sometimes includes hair tips. But I think it's getting to a thing where we do kick off the beginnings of the episode with more hair tips and the like. And then we go into our stories. So I did want to say that for Christmas, Edward got me the Diva Curl Anti Frizz Microfiber Towel. And this was no accident. Do you have a towel like that? I do not yet. Just the head wrap we've talked about. Okay. So part of the reason he got it for me, and this is sort of like my confession to the world at large, because I actually had to confess to him a couple of months ago what what was happening. So when I started, when I first got my hair cut and started reading about Curly Girl Method, it's all about like, don't use a regular towel to dry your hair because it will be abrasive on the cuticle and that you should use a t-shirt or a microfiber towel. Okay, so fine. But I didn't have the microfiber towel, so grabbed a t-shirt. And at first I was like, does it matter what t-shirt? If it's whatever, I'm just drying up, soaking up the extra moisture, right? And I got a couple of old t-shirts that I was using for this purpose. But from time to time, I would just be in the bathroom and be like, oh no, I forgot my t-shirt. So I just grab whatever was lying around. Not realizing that, you know, there's hair product in your hair and who knows what's in it. You can see where this is going. <laughs> Edward's like, one day he puts on his t-shirt that's got like a rainbow, something cool I bought him for to wear to Pride from a shop in the US. And he's like, what is this weird stain on the front? It's a very strange shape. <laughs> and let me tell you that, because now I've it started to become more obvious on all of the t-shirts that were in that rotation. It looks like a series of Rorschach tests. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all in the shape of your hair. It's all in the shape of how I squish out the extra water and like product of my hair. So at some point I had to tell him, I'm sorry, this is why your t-shirt looks like that. I did it with my hair. I'm sorry I ruined your shirt. I've tried stain remover. It won't come out. And so I have these weird t-shirts that have marks on them, but now I have the towel and I haven't tried it yet because I actually wanted to try and do an unboxing video and show our listeners like what it looks like and whatnot. And I haven't done that yet, but I will try it. And it's it's all very mysterious to me, like that the towel is going to make a big difference or even that the t-shirts make a big difference. And sometimes we just read these rules and then sort of follow it. I don't know, assuming that it's helping. So are these t-shirts now yours? Well, the one that he really liked, I just don't use it anymore. So the stain is subtle. It's it's like a very soft, subtle tie-dye Rorschach business. He still wears it, but I've 
realize that my hair product was staining these t-shirts. So now I stick to like a few t-shirts that are in rotation specifically for hair and they get folded up and put in a basket in the bathroom. Your husband's such a good sport. Does he have a choice? Well, no, but still it could have gone wrong. Yeah. How's it going over at the Podolic household? Yeah, we're good. We're happy it's uh, 2021. Happy to put 2020 behind us. I'm on a waiting list for some new hair product. So I'm going to wait to tell you more about it, but I'm kind of excited because my goal, I think we chatted about this last time. My goal is to try more hair stuff. So I've been doing lots of research, of course, as we should, as we're co-hosts of the show. Anyway, more to follow. Yeah. I like to think of myself as a curly haired researcher, but I guess people who are real curly haired researchers would not like the idea that we're giving ourselves that credit, but. Well, okay. Well, speaking of curly haired researcher, did you, so you flipped me a little mini microwave NPR podcast to listen to. Did you listen to it? Uh, no, I found it and sent it to you, but I haven't listened to it yet. Okay. It's super, it's actually really interesting because it, they interview like a legit hair scientist. Like this is what she does for a living. And she was explaining what creates curly hair unbeknownst to me. And I, I really need to re-listen to it to understand the facts fully. But I always thought that hair curl was because of the roundness or the ovalness of the hair strand. But as it turns out, also your hair follicle has a shape. So it pushes your hair out in a certain way. And then the hair strand itself, curly hair people have, so they sort of likened it to wrapping ribbon. You know, when you're trying to curl ribbon, how one side of the ribbon gets shorter than the other side, that's what creates the curl. So they're saying in a hair strand, there's like two, like there's a mismatch in the hair strand. And that's what, it's like ribbon. It's like, that's what causes the curl. Anyway. Wow. Interesting. I have to listen to it and I will stop calling myself a curly haired researcher. (laughs) Well, it's funny. It's just that like legit, this is, someone's got that career. Like they grew up in science and then they, I think she was saying she worked at the L'Oreal something, something hair department. Institute. Yeah. And it makes sense that they would probably have product researchers that were hair scientists. It's like how food companies, when they're creating food, they hire chemists not cooks. Right. Anyway, we digress. Yeah. But meanwhile, back at home, we're testing product. And I do think, you know, I get a lot of messages on Instagram in particular about people wanting to know, well, what we're using in our hair and what you're using and your hair looks good today. What did you do to it? Like, what are your tips for day two curls? So I do think more and more people are curious about that. So even though our podcast aim is to, you know, talk about, tell each other interesting stories and learn something new about the rest of the world, perhaps that, you know, we can start talking a little bit more about product. And it's funny because I used a new product today. It was a a Mark Anthony. It's funny. It says curls on the bottle like three times. It's like strictly curls, curl envy, curl cream. (laughs) Just in case you weren't aware that it's (laughs) for curly hair. They don't want you to miss it in the aisle. No. I had another curl cream by Cantu that I loved and I used up. So I tried this and the my bangs are really frizzy now. The rest of my hair looks great. So I don't know if it was like uneven application, what I did, but we'll keep experimenting. Hmm. That's interesting. So many variables. Totally. That's the name of the game in the curly haired world, in my opinion. 
Yeah. So um, do you want to share your curl next door? Is it my turn to go first? Yeah, you go first. Okay. Oh my God. I will. So I have to say, first of all, this may not be easy. (laughs) The research, I could have done more research, but you know, we both have day jobs. (laughs) It's hard to find the time. I hear you. Also, this is like taking place in Italy. And so I might mispronounce (laughs) some of the Italian words. Meanwhile, my husband, who spent like over 10 years working for an Italian restaurant, basically thinks he's Italian, would just laugh at me the whole way. Like, I can't even say gnocchi. He makes fun of me. Could you say gnocchi better than I can? Gnocchi? Yeah, maybe you're better. I don't know how it's officially pronounced. Gnocchi. Yeah. Gnocchi? Ooh. Ooh, that sounded good. Okay, well, well I case. won't I won't laugh if you mispronounce. I won't even know the okay. difference. All right. Perfect. And then I'll just do my best. And the the irony is that if I tried to really pronounce it with an authentic Italian accent, it would probably sound really silly. And also because this happened a long time ago, some of the facts are hard to cobble together, like what the true real story is. But I'm going to tell you about Alfonsina Strada. Do you know her? No. All right. She may very well be the greatest athlete that you have not heard of. And she was born in 1891. She was an Italian cyclist. And she was the only woman to have ridden in one of cycling's three major races. So we know about the Tour de France. There's another one. And then there's the Giro d'Italia. So she was in the Giro in 1924. And basically, the organizers mistook her for a man. So that's one theory about why she was able to participate. So her racing career included an Italian record, which lasted 26 years, and she died at age 69. And so she was born near Modena, 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 where the vinegar comes from, you know, the balsamic vinegar and also a lot of cars. Okay. What did you say? Modena, Modena. Okay. Tomato, tomato. She was the daughter of a peasant family and her father was a day laborer. Her mother was a wet nurse. Interesting. One account says that her house was a windowless shack through which chickens ran. There's debate about how many siblings she had, basically. One says she was one of 24 people living there. Other reports say she was one of eight children. Others say she was one of 10 with eight brothers. Basically, her living conditions were not ideal, but you never know when these things get romanticized by reporters later on. So basically, she grew up as a tomboy. She played with her brothers and their friends a lot, and she rode her father's bicycle until she was 10, and her father bought her a bike in exchange for some chickens. Which it's interesting because then we hear about how her parents didn't really like her cycling. But as a child, I think they thought it was okay and harmless enough. And some accounts say that villagers like crossed themselves, like Catholic, like crossing, you know, as she rode past. And that her, her nickname was Devil in a Dress because she was just riding around everywhere, behaving more like a boy than a girl. And apparently her mother wanted her to be a seamstress and tried to push her into that. And she was just not interested. But clearly she was fast and strong. She rode her first race at about the age of 13 and won a pig, a live pig. Awesome. That's a nice prize. I think so. And basically as a 
young teenager, she was winning every girl's race she entered and a lot of boys races as well. And she was invited to ride in the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg in 1909, which would have, I guess, put her at like 18 or something. I'm not very good at math. And she she did very well in that race as well. The Tsar and Sarina were very impressed with her work and she was a, a success. So she's starting to just go with it. She's 20 years old. She went to the southern suburbs of Turin where she set a women's hour record. So the the record is that she went over like 37.192 kilometers within that hour. And there's debate about the length of time that her record truly stands because there was a lot of sexism going on. And so people didn't really want to recognize her successes. I mean, the sad thing is there's still a lot of sexism going on in, um, in cycling, but at the time as well. So she beat her own record at the age of 47, but I think there's, and this is where things get a bit sticky and I could have gone down many, many rabbit holes, but you don't necessarily find her name in record books because whoever in cycling was keeping track of these things didn't recognize basically women's achievements. So it's, it's hard to find a lot of detail about some of this. Like in the UCI recognized women's hour long records in 55, whereas men's records date back to 1893. And when are we, this is early 1900s? Yes, right now. So the Giro she participated in this is like the big kind of story of her life was, well, it was the only time I think she really participated. And the only time a woman has participated was in 1924 when she was 33. So we're kind of leading up to that. We're, we're in the teens. She's doing a lot of other races and having success and setting some records. So in 1915, at the age of 24, she married a man named Luigi Strada. So her last name was Marini before that. And Strata was a metal plater and engraver, but he also rode and raced. And her, his wedding present to her was a new racing bike. I love that. It's very sweet. That's super sweet. And like really unusual for the time. Like he obviously was very supportive. He was very supportive and very impressed with her. And he basically became her trainer. And I think it's funny because some stories say like her parents were hoping, oh, this marriage is going to straighten her out and she'll leave cycling behind and forget about all that stuff and become more of a proper housewife. But that wasn't the case. And he was just by her side through it all. So today the Giro is like a three-week multi-stage bike race. And basically... (laughs) There was a lot for me to learn here because I don't know a lot about cycling other than stories of Lance Armstrong and the Tour de France. So as the name suggests, the stages of the race are primarily in Italy for this one, but it does occasionally visit other countries. So the, what are the other ones? Tour de France and Vuelta a España. I don't know. I think there's another one that's not that. That's the third in a triad that we accept now. Anyway, basically the modern Giro is like, they're all skinny. Everyone's in Lycra. We've got 
a lot of high stakes sponsorships, team buses, a media frenzy, a fan frenzy, and very, very expensive bikes. But at the time, it was very different. This was kind of earlier on in the sport, earlier on in that particular event. So at the time, in I feel like, what's her name from Golden Girls? Picture it. 1924, <laughs> Italy. It's uh, Sophia. Picture it's this. Sophia. Picture this. <laughs> I love Picture it. Picture this. <laughs> so essentially, she applied as Alfonsin Strata. She dropped the A from her name. So a lot of people credit the fact that she was able to get into the Giro because they thought she was a man. But I have to back up a little bit because the Giro was sponsored by a sports newspaper at the time and run by Emilio Colombo, who ran Gazeta dello Sport. And there were ways that they were organizing the, I don't want to call it a race because it's so much more than a race with like all these days and weeks and stages, but they were not allowing managers, massage therapists, mechanics, you know, team cars, all these things that perhaps were allowed in Tour de France. And so some of the top riders of the day were boycotting. They didn't want to participate. So Colombo opened it up. He said, we have places for 90 riders. We're going to give them 600 chickens, a bunch of meat, bananas, eggs. We're going to pay their bills and hotels, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of people entered. And some people think that Colombo knew that the scandal of the fact that she was a woman would create like a bit of an interesting story for and actually sell more newspapers. Does that make sense? Got it. So, so he knew, but he pretended not to know. Well, we don't know. There's differing accounts. A lot of research, if you look up her and why she, how she got into the Giro, a lot of people will say they thought she was a man. They only realized she was a woman the day before the start of the race, and then it was too late. So because that absence of an A at the end of her name hit her gender. So she was accepted. She was number 72. Journalists began writing about Alfonsin or Alfonsino or whatever. They realized she was a woman. Whether Emilio Colombo knew or not remains to be seen. But it's interesting to think about that relationship between a sporting event and the publicity around it, even as early as the 20s. Definitely. I mean, a story is a story, right? Exactly. And if he's a newspaper man at heart, (laughs) he's going to go for the story. So on the first day, she came 74th, an hour behind the leader, but that's not bad. Standard standard of the day and riders could be separated by hours. This is where it gets like confusing for somebody like me. If you're reading about how many stages, how many days, how many weeks between all these different cities. So she's finishing, you know, 50th of 65 between Genoa and Florence, surviving. Basically, like this was a crazy race. I think there were 90 people who started in the end. I'll tell you how many actually finished, but the weather was horrible. These things are just very, very difficult. Rains pouring, mud, rocks sweeping across the road. She crashed her bike at one point. Her handlebar snapped and she like had no bike, basically. She was standing by the roadside. So what are 
What happens when that happens? Well, funny you should ask, but a farmer like snapped a broomstick in half and like jammed it in the hole. So she kept riding. Way to go, farmer. I love it. Right? The everyman steps in. She rode on with one side of her bar of steel and the other made from a broomstick, but she, she ended up finishing outside the time limit. So basically, she was the only woman who's ever been allowed to participate in like a men's grand tour. And it's got 12 stages averaging over 300 kilometers. And partially because of the broken bicycle, she failed to make the time cut, but she still was allowed to continue until the end. So even though her time wasn't amazing, she was one of only 30 people who finished. So out of the 90, like this is how horrible it was. Rocky, icy roads, you know, people would suffer and fall. She had to, you know, continue even though she was injured after her fall. So she's excluded because of her time, but people are getting excited about her. And she's supposed to be now excluded from the prizes. The next day onto Fume, a crowd lifted her from her bicycle and carried her in triumph when she finished in tears from pain and exhaustion 25 minutes after the time limit. And it motivated her to continue to Milan. So she was no longer formally in the running, but she finished more than 20 hours ahead of many, many talented cyclists. And it's hard to understand like what hours mean in these types of really lengthy races, but she finished 28 hours behind the winner and he was almost an hour from the runner up. Anyway, this is maybe too much information that you don't need <laughs> that we can take out. <laughs> but basically she finished though. I think that's the celebration. That's the celebration. So There were riders that finished behind her and they gave her 50,000 lira for her efforts. Is that what they call it? Lear? I think lira is right. Lira. So she was not allowed to ride the Giro again, but she followed it for years, earned the respect of journalists and other competitors. And she rode other exhibition races throughout Italy, Spain, France, Luxembourg and St. Petersburg in 37 in Paris. She defeated a French champion in 38. She set the female world record for the hour covering 32.58 kilometers in Paris, a record that was beaten in 1955 by a woman named Tamara Novakova. (laughs) Wow. Just Just excited to hear someone named Tamara. I know. So, Her husband, Luigi, died in 1946, and she did end up remarrying a retired racing cyclist, and they opened a bicycle shop in Milan. And he, her husband, her new husband, Carlo Massori, started to write her biography, but he died before it was completed. So I think there's a lot of interesting accounts of her life, but not particularly that one. But it's nice that she found supportive, awesome men in her agreed journey. Yeah. But the downside is that she had to pretend to be a man to participate. It's frustrating. You know what the real, well, there's, there's a couple nice last little bits about her, but you know what the real like crazy downside is that I just can't even believe right this moment. Tell me 
Like when I read this, I thought, oh boy, well, I guess a lot has changed. But women are still not allowed to ride in the Giro. And like, they're not allowed to ride in the Tour de France either. Basically, there's a whole bunch of lame excuses why people argue that women can't possibly compete with men because we have periods and because we're smaller or weaker. And a lot of it, like if you talk to actual scientists, they will say that those reasons, they're social and they're cultural reasons. They're not, they're not actually physiological because when you look at, yes, men may have bigger muscles and perhaps be stronger in certain ways. Like when they, I read some articles about sprinting and that, you know, men can perhaps be faster sprinters, but women in general are better at endurance. Wow. And what difference does it make if you have women in the Tour de France? Like what's the downside? I think it's just like one of those institutions that's like a fortress. They just don't want women in it. So, okay, quickly to wrap up a bit about her, she lived in Milan at the end of her life. She rode to the shop every day until she closed it. And she ended up riding a motorcycle later in life. And uh, I, I love this kind of image of her. And of course, the reason I'm talking about her is because she had really nice curly hair. And I know it's not really a part of her story. She was not defined by her hair. But I actually was, I have a book called Bedtime Stories for Rebel Girls or something to that effect that I was reading to Noah, who there's no reason as a nine-year-old boy that he shouldn't hear amazing stories about cool women. And so I was reading this book and I was like, oh, she's amazing. She has curly hair. I'm interested in her story. She was in that book? Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. I've heard of that book. Good for you. It's great that it's, you're sharing that with the kids. One. It was a lovely present from my sister-in-law who also has curly hair. She got it for them for Amelia for Christmas last year, but it's a little bit like, you know, it's not as much of a picture book. So Noah was interested and I'm sure Amelia will be as well. So thanks, Janet. So Strata rode her motorbike till the end and she, she ended up dying of a heart attack, but her bicycle is among the collection at the Madonna del Gisalo Chapel close to Lake Como. So maybe, you know, George Clooney has stopped in with his lovely wife to check out their bike. And then a last little anecdote that um, in 2010, there's an Italian band, Tete de Bois, and they published the song Alfonsina e la Bici, dedicated to her. And the video clip has the Italian astrophysicist Margarita Hack starring as Alfonsina Strada. So I'll have to check out, I'll try and post that video of this song on our Facebook. We'll have to see if Margarita Hack also has curly hair. But Alfonsina was a very talented and determined athlete ahead of her time. She did not want to give up. She, it's hard to imagine a woman doing something in 1924, though, that nobody's done since then. That's what's crazy to me. So... You won't believe how applicable that sentence is to my CND. Just remember Ooh. that when we shift over ahead of okay. her time and no one's done it since her. Ha. Okay. So what was her full name? 
Alfonsina Strada. Wonderful. I love the CND. So she's a legend, it sounds like, within her own country. She's part of athletic history. Yes, absolutely. And just women in athleticism in general. And it's. I didn't mean to say that no women since then has beaten her records or cycled more than her or further than her. And certainly there are women who have done a version of a, like a women's version of the Tour de France and women who have perhaps like ridden the Giro trail or route like the day before in, you know, trying to protest because the women's cycling movement certainly has come a long way. It's just kind of shameful to me that there's still these very, very distinct barriers. Agreed. Anyway, I'm, I'm very interested to hear who you're going to tell me about now. Okay. So my CND this week is about someone who was back in the zeitgeist in the tail end of 2020 with the launch of season four of The Crown. So in the theme of ahead of her time and no one since her, TV watchers were all abuzz about the Iron Lady, the former <sighs> British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. Amazing. Right? I want to hear this. So your first instinct may be, she doesn't have a ton of curly hair, but she does have, well, I'll get into it. Okay, so Margaret Thatcher was the first woman to become Prime Minister of Britain. She was the first to lead a major Western power in modern times. She was the Prime Minister for 11 years from 1979 to 1990 and held this role longer than any other British politician in the 20th century. And she's actually quoted as saying she never thought she'd see a female Prime Minister in her lifetime, let alone become it. Yeah. She her her nickname was the Iron Lady and it was given to her by a Soviet journalist and it became a symbol of her uncompromising politics and leadership style and her policies became known as Thatcherism which is a political legacy still controversial today. Some people hate her, some people love her. My impression of her is basically from watching Gillian Anderson in The Crown. And I don't, and my stepfather keeps telling me to not learn my history through movies. <laughs> so yeah, Gillian Anderson depicted her beautifully and is getting a lot of accolades for it. And when I was doing research for this, I kept coming across articles about the hairstylist on the crown and how oh. difficult it was to recreate Margaret Thatcher's hair, but how important it was because it's such a huge part of her personal brand. It's very distinct. It is. So Thatcher was born in 1925. She held her first role in public office in 1959 as a member of the British Parliament. In 1975, she won the Conservative Party leadership and at the time was the leader of the opposition. And she became PM after her party won the 1979 general election. And her mandate was to introduce economic policies to reverse high unemployment during a long running recession. And like, I don't, I don't want this to become too political or too mired in um, hard to understand political concepts, but I thought I would just give a super high level overview of what she stood for. Cause it's really important. 
And I am featuring yeah, a politician, I, so. And I don't really understand what Thatcherism is. Yeah, so so I, I, I can high level explain that. Just based on her policies and what she tried to steer the country into. So she emphasized deregulation in the financial sector, which was trying to just take some of the shackles off government regulation of finances. So with with those removed or some of those reduced or softened, it allowed banks and other financial institutions to take the economics and revenue streams a little bit in a different direction. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And then she sought to privatize state-owned companies and reduce the power of trade unions. Have you seen um, Billy Elliot? <laughs> I have, but it was a long time ago. And I was probably just paying attention to the dancing. Yeah. Whenever I hear about reducing the power of the trade unions, I think about Billy Elliot and the, the minor strike, which was a huge part of her tenure. So... Does that, that sort of is the, those are the basics of Thatcherism, but I'll keep going. Keep going. Although her popularity waned during the first few years in office, she was able to stay in power after winning in a landslide election in 1983. And this was right after her victory in the Falklands War, plus the economy started to recover. In the following year, she survived an assassination attempt by the IRA And then, as I mentioned earlier about the miners, she stood firm and won what she considered a political victory against the National Union of Mine Workers in the 84-85 miner strike. And so she, she felt really strongly about reducing the power of unions, feeling that they undermined democracy and economic performance due to the threat of strikes. They would sort of, you know, hold the country hostage, which she didn't feel was right. So although she was reelected for a third term with another landslide win in 1987, her party started to turn against her. She was losing popularity. So she resigned as prime minister and as party leader in 1990. And a couple years later, just walked away from politics. And if you finished the crown, you would have learned that she was given a peerage as Baroness Thatcher of Kestevin in the county of Lincolnshire which entitled her to sit in the House of Lords. And she died in 2013 at the age of 87. Wow. Yeah. So some interesting facts about her life to further help paint the picture of who she was. Her father was also in politics, having been mayor of her hometown of Gratham. Gratham? Gratham for a couple of years. I'm not going to know the right way. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, Tamara. Gratham? (laughs) In 1938, prior to World War II, her family briefly gave sanctuary to a teenage Jewish girl who had escaped Nazi Germany. And in fact, Thatcher and her sister helped save money to help pay for the girl's travel. She was head girl in her high school. She started her career and studied chemistry at Oxford, which is interesting. So she started her career in science but also stayed engaged in local politics, becoming a conservative candidate in 1950. She became a barrister in 1953. Like this is one smart lady. Yeah. She voted in favor. Okay. This, I couldn't believe this. She voted in favor of birching as a form of corporal punishment and supported the retention of capital punishment. So she voted in favor of birching. That's like whipping someone with a, 
branch. She's a bit of, um, what do I want to say? Not a dichotomy, maybe, because some of the things she stands for seem very outdated. And yet in other ways, she was ahead of the curve and a first. Yeah. And I think that's why her work was so controversial. Because she had to reflect, like she reflected conservative party values, but she felt she knew it was right to take the country forward. And that got a lot of resistance, but then it ultimately did work. Like the economy did turn around, the recession they were able to crawl out of. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to keep going with a few other little factoids. She advocated her party's policy in terms of giving tenants the right to buy their council houses. She was against high taxation, arguing that lower taxes served as an incentive to hard work. She supported the bill to decriminalize male homosexuality. So again, very forward thinking. Mm -hmm. Voted in favor of legal abortion. So that's also quite progressive. Mm -hmm. But conversely, voted against the relaxation of divorce laws. See, this is where I get confused. And I'm like, are you kind of like a feminist icon or are you just Phyllis Schlafly? She, okay, I don't, I don't want to misquote this, but okay. on the point of feminism, I don't think she considered herself a feminist. I think she considered women just as capable as everybody else, but didn't consider herself like a on the soapbox feminist. No, I didn't get that impression. She supported the ban on hair coursing, <laughs> which is the pursuit of hares and greyhounds. Oh, okay. I was like, I have coarse hair. Oh my God. <laughs> That's really funny. In this case, it's H-A-R-E, like rabbits, like Rabbit. hares. <laughs> like, but there's a lot uh, of animal sports in the UK. So she was, right. she didn't like this. This is when like you're on a horseback and you're chasing the hares or the greyhounds. Well, there was an episode in The Crown where she was clearly uninterested in their hunting. That's right. Because the crown is the perfect resource. <laughs> Everything I know about history is from television and film. British politics. She received criticism for cutting the free milk program for students aged 7 to 11. So this caused a real sh a storm amongst her political opponents in the press. And the press nicknamed her Margaret Thatcher Milk Snatcher. Well, it rhymes. It does. It's actually quite good. Oh, but they hated her for that. Apparently, a, a predecessor, possibly in the opposing party, eliminated the milk program in high school. So everyone used to get free milk. So the high school milk got taken away. And then when she was minister of education, she had to find places to cut the budget. And she felt that students in school should have their academics prioritized. So she felt the lesser of the two evils was to get rid of the milk. Anyway, she said she learned a good lesson from this. Quoted as saying she incurred the maximum amount of political odium for the minimum of political benefit. Okay. After winning the top seat, she started to receive criticism on the sound of her voice. So she then ended up through two degrees of separation, one of whom was Sir Olivier, Lawrence of Olivier, Olivier? Mm -hmm. Did I say that right? Um, Lawrence <laughs> Olivier? <laughs> yeah. 
I didn't write that part down. I'm going off memory here. Um, he introduced her to his voice coach at the National Theater. So she started taking voice lessons. And then her cut to funding. So she cut funding to higher education, which in a roundabout way had an impact on her personally. So as it turns out, she was the first Oxford educated prime minister not to receive an honorary doctorate from Oxford because the governing assembly and a petition influenced the decision. So I guess prior to that, other prime ministers who had gone to Oxford were given an honorary doctorate, but they rescinded it because they didn't like her. Hmm. And she was also an advocate for climate change policy, helping to put the conversation in the British mainstream. Cool. And this is just the beginning of her career. Like I, I sort of, you know, high level spoke about it at the start of this, but like, she's got quite a storied tenure. I mean, she was in role for 11 years. And that's what I, how I think about her. Like she was around for a long time. She has a big reputation that precedes her. She's very divisive. Very divisive. So looping this back to her hair, in a recent beauty and fashion survey, Margaret Thatcher's hairstyle was voted the fifth most influential hairstyle in the last 50 years. Her, (laughs) isn't that crazy? Her hairstyle- Very big. It's big. Her hairstyle was called a set and curl, and her signature look was later referred to as a thatch. (laughs) Now that doesn't sound very nice. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. And like the symbolism of the hair was interpreted as no nonsense. It meant business. It was set in curlers, back combed, teased, and sprayed. And while the color changed over the years from blonde to brunette to platinum, the length would also change occasionally, but the set was always consistent. So that's why it was so iconic to her. And apparently in advance of international travel, she'd ask her British ambassadors to find a good local hairdresser who could use a very specific kind of hair roller that was her favorite. And the British National Archives released her 1984 appointment book, and it outlined 118 hair appointments in that year. And you know what? Like at first, that number seemed really outrageous to me. And high, but when I think about it, it's not that big of a deal. Like if you're in the top seat, the hot seat, and everyone's looking at you and you're in the press all the time, you want to make sure you look polished. And 118, like that's only every few days on average. Twice a week. Yeah, like that's no big deal. And by today's standards, like it just, you could be on Instagram and you get your hair done every day. That's right. So people were quite outraged by it or not outraged, but like surprised, but I don't think it's that big of a deal. Well, and who's paying for it? That, that can become the issue. That could have, yeah. So I don't know, but even actually, I don't know about that. Even if taxpayers paid for it, you still want your top dog to look good. Oh, I don't have a problem with it personally. And I think, but it's one of those things that, especially in a crumbling and devastated economy that they could get upset about i know they did with the royals a lot okay fair the hairstylist on the netflix show the crown said it was essential to nail the thatch hairstyle for jillian anderson to help transform her into the role and it's quoted that 
Her hair was not designed to be beautiful, but it was functional and the function projected strength. So there you go. Lover or hater, former prime minister, Baroness Margaret Thatcher has many reasons to be legendary. And I didn't know she was a Baroness because I haven't got, I haven't finished that season of The Crown. Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. It's okay. Like, yeah, Baroness, that's the equivalent to Sir getting Sir. I don't know. Again, it just makes me think of Baroness von Sketch. I just like saying it, but I don't really know what it means. Yeah. Well, so she's quite the legend. Yeah. I'm glad you picked her. And she does have those curls. She does have those curls. And I mean, that's iconic. It was part of the set, this hair set. And it influenced so many women to get their hair set the same way. I like that you chose her. And I found a few people in my research and I think, should I talk about them? Is their hair curly enough? Is it just wavy? Do they really count? And at the end of the day, I think we have to choose people that just spark our own imagination that we think are interesting, that have either contributed something or influenced something or, you know, the Bob Ross story, like hilarious and he permed his hair but like his hair was so iconic like I think it's a great choice Stephanie thanks and it's funny you say that because I was starting to question it a little bit like an hour before we started recording I was questioning the authenticity of it but it is does involve a curl and I think it's okay and some of the other people I was researching had a very light wave Mm-hmm. And that too, I was like, you know, when I was, I even re-looked at the different classification of curls and, you know, like all the ones are straight, but then when you get into the twos, they start getting curly, but the two A is basically like a little tussled, like it's just yeah. got a little mini wave. I think that's okay. So long as it's got some connection to curl. I mean, goodness, I did a poodle. <laughs> You did a poodle, so anything can happen on this podcast, you know? Like, tune in, listeners, next time, because who knows what the heck we're going to talk about and who. It could be Margaret Thatcher. It could be a poodle. It could be a dude who perms his hair because he's trapped in his own big identity. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Tamara. That was super fun. I learned a lot. You picked a really great CND. I was a bit scattered today, but you know what? These are casual, friendly conversations. And it's it's okay to be scattered in these times. That's the thing. I'm so glad that you let me take last night off because I was kind of just, I, I just needed a break. And it's tough living through a global pandemic. And we all have days that are hard and days that are easy. And, you know, this podcast for us, I think, is meant to be something really fun. And hopefully for our listeners too, it's just like a bit of levity, something interesting, something that can like transport you. And I like the notion of earned t- earned time. Is that what they call it? Where you're, you can listen to a podcast or an audiobook while you're cleaning your house and or doing something else and just have a little escape and a little fun agreed so thanks friends for listening please rate review and subscribe check us out on instagram curl next door podcast or facebook we're also curl next door podcast on facebook and you know what we're even on twitter curl next door pod yeah bye everyone bye steph bye tomorrow